Blog Talk Radio. Space, a final frontier. These are the voyages of the starship Enterprise. Its five-year mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. Monday night at 7.30. We'll be live for the next hour. This is one of our cadet training episodes. This is where we go back and take a look at a, a classic Star Trek episode, be it from Deep Space Nine, TOS, the animated series. And we just have some fun chatting about it because a lot of those episodes, you know, are forgotten because they're so, quote, old. Well, not here. So we're going to talk about Assignment Earth this week and uh basically well before we go let me introduce to you my truck experts who are joining me on this awesome podcast tonight we'll start off well actually i'm surrounded it's the it's the portland crew and the vermont guy so we'll start off with david guess where david is he's in portland go figure david how you doing tonight uh, portland <laughs> um I'm good. i actually kind of threw my back out but you know well, you got to be careful. Well, at least you at least you can still do trek talking, right? Yeah, I'm just laying in bed. <laughs> That's the important thing. And also, you'll never guess where he's from. We have Paul the Wine Guy, and take a wild, wild guess where he's from. That's right, Portland. Go figure. How you doing tonight, Paul? Brother, I'm doing great. This is like the most sci-fi of sci-fi weeks of the calendar year, starting with today with Trek Talking 2 and ending on Saturday with Free Comic Book Day. More science fiction crammed between those days this week than anything else you can imagine. I'm super stoked. It's mind-numbing if you think about it. It's just, it's a great Thursday. time to Thursday, be a Thursday, Jim. Oh, incredible. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's going to blow my mind. And also, my final Trek spurt, also hailing from, you guessed it, Portland, we have with us Eric. How you doing tonight, Eric? Oh, you guys, I am super excited. I am like Paul. I'm freaking out over this week. I mean, it is the week of May 4th. It is the week of Picard finalities. It is the week of awesome premieres. Uh, there's just a lot to talk about. And to boot, we're talking about awesome TOS episode tonight. That's right. It's going to be a good one. We're going to be talking about Assignment Earth, which was originally aired on March 29th, 1966. It was a 26th episode of the second season. The episode that would come after this one, the next episode, was, I think, perhaps one of the best episodes ever produced in the entire history of Star Trek. <laughs> and of course, I'm talking about the incredibly yeah. mind-boggling, really deep, stimulating <laughs> episode of Spock's Brain. So that would be the episode after this one. So bear that in mind. 
Um, it was based on a story written by Art Wallace and Gene Roddenberry. And this episode features Robert Lansing as Gary Seven, Terry Gar as Roberta Lincoln, and I think a lot of people know her as the woman from Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And Barbara Babcock as the Beta 5 computer voice and Isis the Cat. So this episode sets up the Enterprise goes back in time to do routine historical research. Um, so let's start with that. Yeah. <laughs> let's start right, let's start right Actually, there. Actually, so, <laughs> go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, so it's not unlike, uh, you know, last week we actually reviewed uh, one of the greatest episodes of TAS ever, which was yesteryear. Jaxley has the premise, right? The, the crew needs to use the Guardian of Forever to go back in time to do some historical research. Here, in this case, we get the gang going back in time to do historical research because, for whatever reason, they can't exactly figure out uh, how the planet survived desperate problems back in 1968. Uh, and so that is why they are there in the first place. And of course, they use the light speed breakaway factor, just as we saw in uh, Star Trek IV, uh, just as we saw in Picard. And one of y'all is going to have to help me out with the other TOS episode where they use this thing. Uh, there's another one that I return to tomorrow. Thank you, thank you, Paul, for saving me. Uh, so yeah, so we, it's a it's a technique we've seen before many many times to travel back in time. And uh, we just show up there, though. And that's the cool thing is this is one of only two Star Trek episodes uh, of the original series that are entirely not in the 23rd century. This one takes place entirely in the 20th century in the year 1968. Uh, so pretty cool. It, it is. And it, I, I got to say, um, going back and, and re um well, come on in here. Come on. Come on. Good girl. My dog is barking at the door. She wants to come in and lay my feet while I'm doing the podcast. I thought I could sneak in, but she found me. There she is. Okay, you lay down and chew your bone, girl. So um, I'm going back, and I'm, I'm rewatching this, and I'm thinking to myself, wow, what about the temporal accords and all this other stuff? <laughs> and then I'm thinking to myself, well, well apparently just slingshotting around the sun is just a common thing that everybody does now. I mean, I, I just thought, why didn't they use the guardian like they did in TOS? I mean, TAS, why would they do go back in time like that? The, 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 the premise just didn't make sense to me at all. Watching it again after so many years. Um, well, but Jim, you cannot view this episode through the lens of having the entirety of 55 years of Star Trek under your belt. Like when this, episode came out TAS did not exist right uh, we did have the Guardian of Forever but uh, we didn't have with like this technique had not been used over and over again necessarily so I thought it was kind of cool that you know when they first put this episode out this was a new thing we used this sling or they don't even call it a slingshot they call it the light speed breakaway factor at that time, nobody knew what the hell that was. <laughs> like, like now we associate that with Star Trek Four, really, right? Because that's the first time we really get to see it. Or no, not the first time. Wait, do they show it in that episode of TOS, Paul? The one? Yeah, you... and sorry, I got the title wrong too. After my 
Grey Matter kicked in. It's tomorrow is yesterday. Is the one? It's the one where you go back with a test pilot whose uh, right. kid is going to lead the successful like Mars probe or whatever Saturn probe, I think it was. But yeah, they, they do they, they do show the yeah. uh, the breakaway. Yeah, they they are okay. approaching the sun, then pull away, and yeah. magical forces propel them in time. And what Just, season is that one in? Season one. That is a season one. Okay. Yeah, season one. So it's before this Gary Seven episode here. But, you know, there's only one reality or one piece of continuity that, that really needs to be tracked as far as all this stuff goes, right? And that's the 1968 reality of Gene Roddenberry. I got an idea for a pilot spinoff, and what's the fastest <laughs> yes. way I can get this premise in front of a producer? Okay, here we go. I mean, nothing else matters, man. I mean, I, our, no one in those days for a second thought there would be the fealty to tracking reality and continuity that exists now back then. I mean, their idea of continuity was making sure that Shatner had his hair parted on the right side versus two days ago. They never imagined that there would be a bunch of guys on computers like 55 whatever years in the future agonizing over slingshot effects and stuff like that. I mean, if Gene would be laughing. It's great. It's amazing what they spawned, man. And we're like, oh, my God, I'm never going to get to Harvard if I don't answer this question correctly. <laughs> Absolutely true. Absolutely true. So you got to, like, with a lot of these episodes, like you're saying, then uh, you have to kind of view them within the context that they were produced, right? Because if you don't and you try and fit them too harshly into a box that ha- does have 55 years of canon – you're probably going to uh, get tripped up at some point and be disappointed. <laughs> well, I don't think there's keep a point mind that Star Wars wasn't even um, in the works yet when this episode aired. Not even close. Yeah. No. No. Star, yeah. Star Wars was, what, 11 years off from this? Oh yeah, at least like and I think fucked up nine years off in terms of sixty eight. Yeah, but uh, but yeah, George yeah. is still like trying to pass algebra. Right. <laughs> yeah. Probably <laughs> yeah. yeah. he's like, oh man, I'm never gonna kiss a girl. I just want to drive race cars and draw cartoons of spaceships. Man, come on. Here's, you well, know. Yeah, Small correction, the, at the beginning of the show you said 1965, Jim, but you're right, uh, Paul. This episode came out in. 19 or excuse me uh you said 1965 it it did come out in 68 and the the timing of this episode is really kind of weird guys oh Uh, i know what you're gonna say i know exactly what you're gonna say yeah because so this episode comes out in march of 68 and uh gary seven is talking about all of the things that are going to happen right and he Uh and and one of the things that he talks about is that there will be an important assassination. Um, and then he talks about a couple other things, like a coup in Asia, a couple other things. So this thing airs 29th of March, 1968. Six days later, MLK is assassinated. Hmm. What a weird like coincidence of things occurring because – it is pretty clear that that assassination had a profound effect on society in general at that time. And Star Trek just happened to be there and happened to say something. Of course, they didn't predict that specific one and they didn't, you know, there's no actual connection there, but just the, the timing is so serendipitous that you're kind of like, whoa. That's, it's uncanny. It's absolutely it's uncanny. uncanny. Yeah. And, and this episode yeah, also predicts 
the the predestined time paradox situation because this is where Kirk and Spock say, well, our records do show that a missile exploded 104 uh, miles above yeah. Earth on, on this date. So, <laughs> no. so we were supposed to be here to make this happen, which creates the very first official time paradox, which we very well could be witnessing on Star Trek card right now. Yeah, I know, and it's crazy. And it's, and it's so weird because at the very beginning of the episode, they went back and they said that they didn't have good records of the period, so that's why they went back to do research because they couldn't figure out what happened in 1968. And then later on in the episode, they say that their records uh, show something. So the way that my brain retconned that was that during that episode, you know, the timeline was changed in the way in which it needed to be changed. <laughs> and so their records were actually updated on the Enterprise. There was information that wasn't there at the beginning of the episode that shows up on their records at the end of the episode. As Paul said, this is me totally just headcanoning this because when they made this episode back in the day, none of this was in their brains. Well, it's kind of like, like Cisco being Gabriel Bell in the official records. Yeah, no one's like, checking anyone's they, math, right? It's just, it's, right. Uh, you know, it's like we go, we fill in the blanks of what we think, well, it would make sense if this is the excuse. And we almost instinctively, reflexively do that, right? It's yeah. a hard thing because yeah. you want, you want things to make sense, right? It's the way our brains are engineered, but it's, but it's totally crazy. And what it always, what the premise of this show is funny is reminds me of, right? Because they're an advanced civilization, uh, you know, the Gary Seven is, and that they've been, you know, from what little exposition he gives us, right? They've been taking people from various planets off Earth or wherever they're from to their planet and training them for like generations, right? So they can go back and plant them there to kind of be their their guardians, their watchers, if you will. And it's kind of almost reminiscent. I don't know if you remember the next gen episode, Who Watches the Watchers? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. It's like a proto, proto-Vulcan planet, right? Where they're still very yeah. primitive, like Bronze Age people. But the Federation scientists are in this kind of like duck blind, right? Kind of like hidden away behind a holographic rock, just watching them to make sure they're okay. And it's very similar to what Gary Seven does, right? They're basically down there mostly to observe but also, if it looks like something's going to go south, they intervene, which is a really interesting twist, right? So, but really cool premise, and uh, I, it would have made a great series, I think. I mean, it's really appropriate to the era, that whole late series vibe of TV, you know, with like The Man from Uncle and shows like that. This would have been terrific. Yeah, absolutely, you know? And I'm sorry, but Robert Lansing is just, he just exudes cool. He had the look. He had oh, that. man, he just has that soft whisper, that kind of Gary yeah. Cooper quality. Like he just, you know, if a gun went off next to his head, he wouldn't even flinch. flinch. Right? Yeah. He's just totally cool. That, he was great at that. I also wondered if the uh, – going off the idea that uh, Paul mentioned that they need to be a series about this is that makes me wonder if the Voyager episode relatively – relatively, whatever that word is called <laughs> – uh, makes me wonder if that group was the Gary – Seven kind of group where they were watching time, and yet, you know, they try mm-hmm. to keep things from going around. And also, I'm wondering now. Also, Daniel from Enterprise might have maybe started that whole group because they they said that there are different sects, you know, sect of the the, uh, the time watchers. I guess you could call them that they were just kind of like. <laughs> keeping an eye on making sure events play out the way they're supposed to. And so, I don't know. 
kind of makes me well, wonder. Well, unfortunately, if... Enterprise got canceled, and they never really adequately wrapped up the whole uh, time, uh, well, uh, temporal thing with who the guy was, and really right. Daniels. They they never got to really adequately finish that. So I guess we'll never really know. But listen, we got to take our first break here, guys, and. And in preparation, preparation for Thursday night's premiere of Star <laughs> Trek Strange New Worlds, we just heard the original opening sequence with, of course, William Shatner doing the narration. Now that Anson Mount is stepping into the role of Captain Pike, I wonder if he's going to read his own little narration. Well, why don't you take a listen and decide for yourself what you think. Here is the opening sequence for Star Trek Strange New Worlds, which you will see Thursday on Paramount+. Plus. Space. The final frontier. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. It's five-year mission to explore strange new worlds. To seek out new life and new civilizations. To boldly go where no one has gone before. And that sound you heard was my head popping. I'm just totally <laughs> just <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Just, do you, do you so, need wow. the mop, Uncle Jim? Do you need me to yeah. bring the mop wow. in? Wow! <laughs> what a great time to be a Star Trek fan. I gotta say, it's the golden age of Star Trek. So uh, before we took our break, we were talking about Star Trek Enterprise and the temporal time accords, the the temporal time police. You know, there was all kinds of things that were brought up on Enterprise, but never really. They didn't get a chance to wrap up those storylines because it was canceled. But Eric, Eric has something to talk to us about. Well, I just wanted to make sure that we're not, uh, so to speak, crossing our streams on this one. So I think we <laughs> might actually have crossing two... the streams is very bad. Yeah, we <laughs> I remember. Have... I remember that from <laughs> Ghostbusters. It's very bad. <laughs> So we might actually have two groups here, guys, and I'm not – like, to me, it's not entirely clear. So so David brought up uh, the Voyager episode Future's End, uh, part two, 
where the USS Relativity shows up, and they bring up the Temporal Integrity Commission, which is a group that is supposedly uh, in charge of making sure the timeline goes the way it's supposed to go. Okay, so that is one group and kind of one set of goals that's happening in terms of keeping track of the timeline. Then in Enterprise, we have Daniels and the Temporal Agents and the Temporal Cold War. In that context, Daniels is not a guy who's tasked with the, with the, the, the keeping everything the way that it's supposed to be. He's actually tasked with entirely different things, with, with making sure that this war is waged in a particular way that it doesn't completely destroy the universe. So I just want to be careful that it's not like Daniels and those gang from Enterprise are necessarily part of the same group of people that Gary Seven's from. Uh, and Gary Seven may or may not be part of the same group that shows up in Voyager. I'm, I'm more uh, inclined to think that he's part of that group or that that group is actually part of his group, obviously, because he came first. Um, but I, I think that folks from Enterprise are maybe outside that a little bit because the Temporal Cold War is people trying to change the timeline to make things different. And so Daniels is a different entity in that. And you also have the Temporal Investigations from Deep Space Nine, too. Correct. Uh, and think, yes. And those guys are more, I think, part of that Temporal Integrity Commission, that, that first part that I was talking about that show up in Voyager. I think they're part of DS9, too. They haven't, like... What the thing is, is they haven't, Star Trek hasn't really connected all of these temporal things together in any way. Like they haven't actually told us that these are the same commissions or that they come from the same place. This is all super headcanon right now and just us supposing what might be true. If and nor would they want that. to because it would really limit them in terms of like, you know, what people would want to come up with for new stories and to write yeah. stuff. If you start yeah. painting, you know, a bunch of. Uh, dotted lines down the middle of the highway, all of a sudden you kind of only have to drive on one side of it, right? I yeah, mean, they want to be able point. to leave things a little loose and free to experiment with future franchises that we haven't even thought of yet. And it makes these conversations more fun, right? Because we can head down right. of crap that, that maybe isn't true. <laughs> we're, we're I think it's all run by boys. Tribble. Yeah. And we can do that. Do. <laughs> David's on the Tribbles. I love it. <laughs> but I, you know, one of the things I, I was reading up on this episode a little bit, and I know that uh, Terry Gar, who, of course, was in Close Encounters of the Third Kind, one of the biggest movies that they hit the pike in the 70s. Great Steven Spielberg movie. In fact, they referenced it on Discovery, actually, with the five notes, which, which mm. immediately is dun, 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 dun. Everyone knows that. At any rate, Terry Gar said that she absolutely had the worst time of her life filming Star Trek. She said that Gene Roddenberry was constantly trying to shorten the seams on her dresses to the point where it was uncomfortable for her. She won't mm-hmm. talk about Star Trek. She won't reference Star Trek, wants nothing to do with it whatsoever. It was such a terrible experience for her. But she was great in the episode. I thought she was perfect in that role. So Yeah. I mean, she's she's an interesting character to me because she kind of um, shows up as the – well, she definitely shows up as a person who doesn't have any clue what's going on. Like she, she doesn't know that she's been under the employ of two uh, – of Gary Seven's agent, uh, which I'll uh, – 
I'll just say later we're going to talk about his agency in particular. I will give it a name later, but she has no clue that she's actually been working for these people for a while. And what's amazing to me about this episode is she she does seem to kind of like play it off pretty well. Like she she shows up a little bit as the as the kind of like dumb secretary, but then she realizes at some point that this guy might be nefarious and does try to take over. Um, you know, there's a little bit of kind of like she doesn't. I don't think she's really that successful uh, trying to prevent Gary Seven from doing anything that he's doing, and that's those are a couple of the weak spots that I think happen in this episode. But she is a really compelling character that for some reason I love to watch. She was great. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, on the page as written, right? She, I, and I can see why she probably, you know, uh, felt bad because it's the late '60s, right? Where it, yeah. it's not exactly a banner era of feminism, right? And no. basically, she's cast to be the ditzy blonde. I mean, how how unappealing is that if you happen to be female, right? Where back then there was very little respect given you at all. So of course she probably had a miserable time if all they can focus on is, hey, how much more of your thigh can we see, right? But the great thing is you could have Terry Garr read the phone book and she's funny, right? right? I mean, you know, look at her in Young Frankenstein, right? One of the great comedies of all so time in cinema. So she's phenomenal, man. So she's great. I mean, I think there's on the page what you see that they gave her to work with, which is like, Nothing, and what you get on screen because she's so funny and talented, which is everything, yeah. right? I mean, you, she's just fantastic. So she she brought a ton to this, but uh, but you can imagine from her perspective, you know, of a you know intelligent woman in the late '60s, she was probably like, "Get me out of here! All these guys want to do is <laughs> see my crotch. <laughs> so right. Come out!" Exactly. Now, here's an interesting thought because of her, I almost had the exact same problem almost left the show, but uh turned out that Martin Luther King actually convinced her to stay. So would the roles be reversed if somebody had convinced Carrie Guy to stay? You know, that would have been an interesting time. Yeah. I I I I mean we'll never know because she just won't talk about Star Trek at all. Doesn't care. Well, she well, can't I mean, talk about it now because she's dead. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and those are very, very well, different well, scenarios. Yeah. I, I mean, mean, you never know. Having... I mean, they're, they're, you know, they're trying to get all this all the time. So, you know. <laughs> but at any rate, the but episode stuff, was it, it was enjoyable, and it actually does tie into Picard because uh, Talon is of the same agency that Gary Seven is from, which is yes. which is cool. And, and, and Jim, is that the only weird and, thing about it that I didn't catch was was why was she a Romulan? Uh, why did they take a Romulan? Why didn't they grab someone from Earth? Why was it a Romulan? I I don't know if they made that clear or I missed it. I'm well, not sure. Jim, did, if you if you remember back, so so we uh, this is now a good time to bring up what I consider if you're going to watch this episode the canon adjacent source that I feel like you absolutely need to tap is the Star Trek year five comic book issue number 17. And that one in particular, uh, illustrated by our good friend JK Woodward and beautifully painted every single panel gives you the entire story of Gary seven and what, where his agency comes from, how he, uh, you know, works his way, into the agency, who these people are, 
uh, it gives you a whole, whole backstory that you do not get in this episode that I think is just absolutely fascinating. Right, Jim? I mean, you remember what, uh, reading that and, before? And I, is this, I believe Kirsten Byers and Mike Johnson were involved in that, too. Yeah, I mean, they they definitely are involved in the Year 5 series. This particular issue was written by Jackson Lansing and Colin Kelly, uh, and of course, uh, you know, illustrated, like I said, by J.K. Woodward. But yeah, what what an interesting backstory to to the whole Gary Seven, uh, 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 what's it, genre? I guess that's not the right word. <laughs> I can't think of the right word. The Gary mythos. Seven mythos. There we go. Mythos. That is a great. Word. I think yes. what you're yes. seeing is something we've talked about on Comic Corner and Book Nook in the past, and that is that Star Trek is finally is finally weaving the books and the comic books the TV shows and the movies into one cohesive universe like Marvel's doing with the Marvel cinematic universe. Whereas, you know, I used to read the pocketbooks back in the eighties, but it got to the point where they were just got ridiculous and I just didn't care anymore. And, you know, cause an author would just come up with an idea and run with it and it would have absolutely nothing to do with anything. It was just what they wanted to do with the character. Well, that doesn't happen anymore. If you read the discovery books, they read like an episode. They read like they could fit right in between this episode and that episode. They're, they're, they're beautifully crafted. Same thing with the comic books, just like Eric is talking about. If you read the IDW stuff, and particularly, you think it was a coincidence that we got this whole Gary Seven thing and we got the whole Q conflict thing and who shows up on Picard? Gary Seven's protege or whatever you want to call her and Q. Yeah. Coincidence? Yeah. I think not. I think that they're starting <laughs> to weave these things together so that if, if you're reading all this media, which we do, it just flows right into the show. And I think that's great, personally. No, I think you're absolutely right. And I think that uh, we're seeing a lot of other examples of that, too, right? It's like uh, over on the other side of the uh, genre fence in Star Wars land, right? It was some, a lot of similar chaotic things where there's all this different stuff. And ever since um, folks uh, got involved on, like, say, the, the, the Disney series, right, like The Mandalorian and, and things like that, they started pulling in more expanded universe stuff from the comics and, and things like that, that before people were like, eh, it's not really canon, and da, 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 da. But, but now they're, they're bringing some of that stuff on board and kind of tying things together and incorporating it and expanding the universe. And the fans have been loving it because it makes a richer tapestry to tell stories. So I think you're seeing a lot of that same stuff here. And Paul, my my like philosophical like uh, societal reason that that is occurring is that people no longer really have to remember things. We live in an age where everybody carries literally the Encyclopedia Britannica uh, in their pocket, right? Or excuse me, the Encyclopedia Galactica, and even better, <laughs> right, in their pocket. Like is this why I'm so forgetful? Of, is that what you're saying? Right. <laughs> Don't panic, man. Don't panic. But like, you can literally look up every single reference uh, that human knowledge can possibly give you in in your pocket, and so we don't really have to like remember stuff anymore. And so, to me, the depth that we see in shows these days is an absolute outgrowth of the fact that now we just look stuff up, and when we look stuff up. 
we think about it and we ruminate on it and we and and it's actually a it's actually an expression of artistic depth to me right like the fact that we try and headcanon all this stuff i mean it was it was one thing to headcanon everything back in the 60s or 70s or 80s or 90s or 2000s it's another thing i think to to headcanon things in the age of the internet because now we can talk about it now we can all like come up with our own crazy ideas and throw them out in the internet and get pissed at each other about it. And, you know, all of that stuff that we love to do. Um, and it just, it, it necessitates that the art that we make now have more depth than it used to have back in the day. What was the name of that, that awesome discovery book that we read that had Lorca prime Lorca, the only time we ever Prime Lorca. What was the name? Because I mess up the titles every time we bring it up. So I'm going to let you mess it up. What was that one? (laughs) Well, uh, Jim, I understand the problem. It's Drastic Measures is the one. Yes. 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 Drastic Measures was a phenomenal, outstanding book. And the reason why I'm bringing it up is twofold. We had the author of the book on our podcast, uh, Dayton Ward, was it? Dayton I think. Ward, yes. Yeah. And at the end of the book, there's a there's a two or a three page uh, epilogue at the end. After, this, after, after everything is done, whoop, the whole whoop, story's whoop. over, everything's finished, it's done. <laughs> if you don't, it's like sitting to the end of the credits in a Marvel movie. <laughs> Turn the podcast okay. off now if you don't want to know. <laughs> it, well, this this book is if you if, this is an old book. Anyways. <laughs> Um, at the end, there's like three pages of what happened to Prime Lorca. And we asked him on the podcast why the story was over. Why did you put that in there? And he told us on the podcast, you guys can go back and listen to it, that Christian Beyer and the producers of Discovery wanted that in there. They wanted yep. everybody to know that Prime Lorca is, is not dead. That's right. So, yep. so take that, that, that for what like you can't really you can't really foreshadow better than that. Yeah. So take that for what it's worth. But also the reason why I bring that book up too is who was the captain of the ship that comes and rescues them and the planet. It was Captain April. Yep. And now we're seeing Captain April. We're going to see Captain April on when on Thursday's episode of Strange New Worlds. So everything that they do, they do for a reason. So I just wanted to throw that out there. Nothing is an accident. Nothing is a coincidence. And and you know they're they're planning everything out years and years before we even know about it, which I think is great. I think that's a good point, Jim. And I just would like to give kudos to that. I think, because I think a lot of people feel like the people running the Star Trek franchise right now don't know what they're doing. And I just want to say that I feel like they really do put a lot of thought into it. And do they always hit the nail on the head? No, but they are really thinking about it in a 21st century context and really trying to piece all of these things together. And the fact that the different teams from the different media, like television, uh, comics, books, all of that kind of stuff, are actually crossing over, that's unprecedented. 
And I just do think that's a very special aspect of this golden age of Star Trek we're in. And I think that Paul hit it on the head before. You know, in the 60s when they wrote Star Trek, they had no idea that 56 years later, we'd be on a podcast talking about, well, they didn't even know what a podcast was. (laughs) But they would be sitting around talking (laughs) to a global community on on a radio show that's broadcast around the world about what they did in the 60s. So There wasn't even know, any syndication back then. It's like when the episode no. ended on like Thursday night or whatever, as far as they knew, it was forgotten to history. Mm. You know, wow. maybe it would repeat, but there wasn't even any idea of reruns at that point, right? I mean, they were like the idea that, you know, uh, that, that people would be, you know, the guys who wrote this stuff, you know, for the most part, they're like, it's a paycheck, right? They're like, okay, I was able to write this one extra episode about immortal you know bat people or whatever right and it's just and then right. done and they're like oh, but the idea that people would be dressing up in the characters that they wrote in the 60s at conventions i mean that's just like your head explodes it's crazy and but it's just what a tribute though to i think a couple things right it's it really shows that this universe which we all pay homage to couple times a week together is just so enduring and touches so many people because of that core of imagination to it. And, and what a, a tribute to the affection of the audience that they have just for and, generations and generations, grandparents and their grandkids are still connecting with this stuff. And it becomes a, an enduring mythology. We, we keep digging back into pretty, pretty freaking amazing. You have to take it for what it is. Basically it's not, it's not the it's not the holy bible of star trek and they're trying the best they can to make all the shows that they're making now fit into the world so they all work together and sometimes just sometimes something that happened or something that was said or something that was done on a previous show 45 years ago or 50 years ago might not exactly fit perfect with what they're trying to do today doesn't mean you throw your arms up and scream the violated canon i'm not gonna watch it it's terrible they broke canon um you can't be that dogmatic about it amen mm-hmm. amen yeah. that, that's very wise words there my friend very wise words you, you just you just can't, can't you know and, scrap a great idea because of one little nitpick thing Right. Yeah. Like at the end can. of the day, I it's mean, just like, what's how good is the story? If it's a good story, tell the story. And you know, right. there's you could if you want to go and list it, there's a billion inconsistencies throughout any fictional universe, right? The Marvel yes. universe where people go crazy, Star Wars. I mean, all of these things. There's a million inconsistencies, and if you are looking to spend time doing that. I mean, you could do that, but is that a really satisfying way to engage as a fan? I'm going to say no. Not at all. For me. I I think it's fun to look at the stuff that overlapped within the episodes, right? Because remember, it was like a relatively cheap TV show, right, during the 60s. And if you look at Gary Seven's computer, right, Gary Seven's monitor, right, in his apartment, that round monitor, you see that in like at least two other episodes, right, of the original series. It's when in the ultimate computer, when, uh, you know, uh, Dr. Daystrom, hijacks the enterprise this great computer it's the same computer interface that he installs down there in engineering right and then that kind of zany time travel episode back in uh season three all our yesterdays with mr atos right and he has the library you can walk through the little thing and go off to like arctic planets or whatever and mr atos has the same 
the same computer. So there's all kinds of funny stuff like that. Uh, in Assignment Earth, this episode, the two cops who you see, right, when they get, <laughs> they come to the door, right, and they're right. like, hey, we're in the shooting. What's going on, right? And that whole thing, these two New York cops. One of them is the actor who played uh, – uh, from shore leave finnegan <laughs> remember finnegan the one who used to taunt, oh, yeah. taunt the drinking uh, yep. yeah yeah he used to taunt kirk at the academy and it's totally finnegan man but it's just like he's, he's got a walk on he's like oh yeah 50 bucks for a walk on no dialogue i'll take it but it's just hysterical because it's just all backlot stuff like that i just love that to me i would rather spend time noticing those things that are in common and those similarities and those little overlaps than start you know, futzing around over what, you know, connective tissue I imagine should make sense doesn't. You know what I'm saying? Exactly. Well, listen, guys, don't touch that dial. We're going to take our final commercial break of the evening, and when we're back, we're going to keep talking about Earth. Trek Talking, all things Star Trek and beyond. Thursday night, 7.30 to 9.30, all hailing frequencies are open iTunes, iHeart, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon, and wherever fine podcasts are found. Trek Talking, boldly going wherever your mind is willing to go. And we're back. So let's talk a little bit about the episode itself and the, the pacing of the episode and the way the way it goes through. So, you know, Scotty's on the on the enterprise and he's trying to find Gary seven and he's bouncing a signal off of a satellite and he's, he's getting these, these shots of a rocket mm-hmm. from space. And it's like, well, how do you expect, do you think he's going to be waving a flag saying, Hey, Scotty, I'm right here. But um, eventually he finds them. And uh, you know, the rest of the episode unfolds after that. But when Kirk and Spock go to the office and Roberto Lincoln is in the office and they have the little tuffle, Spock is wearing a wool hat, which seems to be, to me, the ultimate Star Trek trope. Because every time we have (laughs) an an alien, usually it's a Vulcan, but it has been known to be a Romulan, they put a wool hat on them. Uh, They did it on Enterprise. They did it in... in, uh, and, and TOS, what, this was, what, the third time that Spock wore a wool hat to cover his yeah, ears? City on the Edge of Forever. City on the Edge of Forever, he did it, yep. Uh, so that seems to be, a, a, well, in Star Trek Four, he tore off his bathrobe and tied it around his head. But um, it seems to be throw a wool hat We've on all him. done that, like Jim. One of those We've shows. all done that. You know. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, when, when Kirk and Spock are in the office, and Spock is trying to take control of the rocket. And Kirk was like, I don't know who I should trust. And he's doing the, the, his thing. And Spock says something like what? It's an emotional decision that you'll have to make based on. No, your... he says you have to. He says the logic of the situation doesn't like there's no solution based on the logic and the knowledge that we have. So he has to rely on intuition, human intuition. Yeah. Yes. Something along those lines. What feels yeah. right. The right thing to do. Well, 
And I mean, that's yeah. so to me, that's just like that plays right into something that we see in Star Trek all the time, right? We 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 see many many times, and and I feel like they develop it even later, like you know, Wrath of Khan and like other other stuff later on. But the we learn that the Vulcan logic has limitations, and that the the best balance that we can strike is to take advantage of each other's. Uh, you know, things that we're good at. So, uh, you know, Kirk is at his best when he takes advantage of Spock's logic and Spock is at his best when he takes advantage of Kirk's logic. And so this was just another one of those moments where Spock's like, listen, dude, I don't really know what to do based on logic. You're just going to have to give it a gut call and see what happens. And, and all along Kirk has kind of had this gut thing going, but to me, the gut thing kind of flip-flops in this episode. Like the entire episode, Kirk spends his time distrusting Gary Seven. And Gary Seven doesn't really give him a compelling, like a super compelling argument. Like right in the end, he's basically like, listen, either you do it this way and everybody dies or you do it this way and everybody doesn't die. And Kirk's like, yeah, okay, I'll try it this way. You know, there's no, like, super compelling reason that he feels like he actually needs to listen to Gary Seven. Well, yeah, about the only other way episode. is he, So that the pilot he does episode kind of would get approved. A little bit, though, Eric, where he does kind of say, he goes, he, he kind of, you know, does devil's advocate with Kirk. He's like, would a really advanced civilization come here and do their thing? No, they would, like, they would do it on the QT and they would send people in. And he kind of, like, you know, kind of reassures him that, you know that there's like a higher, more advanced methodology behind here, which I, I think kind of sells it to, to some degree. It's not like evidential as much, but it, it certainly, you know, I think it kind of makes him go, okay, wait a minute. This guy seems like he's not just, you know, up to nefarious means. He's, you know, I think it yeah, makes sure. him trust him a little bit. I don't know. Yeah, that, that, that makes sense to me. And I'll just, now I'm head cannoning. <laughs> right, 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 right. I'll comment that like one of my favorite things about this episode is that they use a bunch of really cool stock footage from back in the '60s of Saturn V rockets and the things sitting on the launch pad. Because you have to realize, guys, that like that's the rocket that took us to the moon, right? And uh, when they show all of those overhead views and and aerial things of the Saturn V rocket, those are all taken from from NASA planes and things that they used and they were able to actually buy that footage and integrate it into this episode. So we get images from the Saturn V rocket used to carry Apollo 4 and Apollo 6, um, which I think is really special. And it's not, it's not, you know, it's fairly well integrated. It's better integrated than the cages integrated into the menagerie, you know? (laughs) Now, did Spock, I'm trying to remember, did Spock try to, Vulcan nerve pinch Gary Seven in this episode yes. and it didn't work. He did. Am I remembering the right episode? Because yes. my brain yeah. is Gary you know, Seven in that first battle that he goes through. Gary Seven uh, resists a neck pinch by Spock and takes out three red shirts. Boom, no problem. Wow, and he's got that Doctor Who type sonic screwdriver pen thing. The sonic. He's got the you sonic, know. and I will tell you that in the, the servo. If yes, if you, is that what they call it, the servo? Yeah. Oh, cool. Pretty well, sure. I, I missed that. I I was like, I rewatched the episode. I was trying to find in all my notes. It's called the Sonic <laughs> because I couldn't <laughs> help myself. But uh, but yeah, to me that thing is very much like a Sonic screwdriver, right? It's in charge of 
Thanos, which he does many, many times in this episode, but it goes beyond that because he's actually able to, um, I think what it is, is make people very suggestible. So he basically zaps them. They get this kind of like look of bliss on their face. And then he says, go to sleep. And they go to sleep. And that happens to at least two different people in this episode. Yeah. You go take a little nap. That's right. It's kind of like the, the men in black thing that you stare into. Poof. Well, and that was the thing was I wondered if it actually did do a memory erase thing because that's not entirely clear. I I personally think it's hilarious when the one guard dude is put to sleep and then right when he wakes up in this episode is when Spock and Kirk beam in. <laughs> so that guy is like, he's got some serious PTSD from this episode. <laughs> <laughs> And let's not forget about Isis the cat. Mm-hmm. We need to talk about her Vacation? a little bit because, yeah, she. I gotta uh, throw out an Isis credit for you, man. Uh, just because at the beginning, I just gotta make, make sure everybody gets their due on Isis because you were talking about Barbara Babcock, right? Who did the voice of uh, the Beta Five right. computer, right? Yeah. Well, she did the voice work for ISIS, believe it or not, right? They were trying to make these cat sounds and they couldn't find anything that worked correctly, right? And she's like, oh, I can do that, yeah. And so she actually is the one who did like the cat sounds is Barbara Babcock because she did a lot of voice work, right? Um, it was a totally different actress um, who played uh, named April Tatro, who was like, a, you know, vivacious actress from the late 60s did a lot of soap opera stuff but she's the one who plays isis in her human form so i know she got a, incorrectly identified for a lot of years so just got to make sure everybody gets their uh, their isis cred right <laughs> well in the in the comic book series that eric was talking about isis actually has a much larger role than just gary seven's pet cat oh yeah so yeah, yeah she basically so, like yeah go ahead jim yeah, so, you know, I highly recommend if you guys are looking for some background information for this episode and for Star Trek Picard, you've got to go and check out the IDW Year 5 stuff um, because Isis is a much bigger character than you might think. Very cool. Yeah. Anyway, it's I'll very say, cool. I'll say uh, issues 11 through the end are the ones that actually include some Gary Seven stuff and some Isis stuff. And I will not reveal anything because I want people to go out and read it. But let's just say that Isis may be even more than she seems uh, from what we've seen in Assignment Earth. Uh, there's there's one layer, uh, person. There's two layers, cat. There may or may not be a third layer. Uh, wow. Onion. The mm-hmm. onion of Isis. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> so check it out. We reviewed them on comic book corner but you guys if you're looking for some stuff like i said the comic books and the novels really tie in well to what you see on the screen so if you're looking for some backstory check it out because you won't be disappointed same thing with uh with discovery and the and the whole klingon thing there were some great comic books that dealt with the with the klingons and filled in a lot of stuff about takuma and what was going on with the time crystals and stuff like that that were not featured in the show, but the comic book really fleshed them out really, really well. Cool. So, uh, Light of Kalos, yeah. I think, was the name of it. Yeah, yeah. Light of Light of Kalos was the most excellent series about the Klingons, but there are some awesome, like, there's a great series called Succession that is the follow-up to the Michael Burnham Mirror Universe 
story. So you get to find out what happens in the mirror universe that you don't find out on discovery, which is pretty, pretty cool. Like what happens when Giorgio leaves and the emperor, there's suddenly this like huge power vacuum where the emperor used to be Uh, cool political things happen. And there also was a story with, uh, with Captain Pike and Laurel. Uh, yes, there was. Yes, there, yeah. was. there was a very excellent story involved in there. I, yeah, I mean, I can't. I mean, Jim's just hitting the nail on the head. I, I can't uh, recommend the start. The recent Star Trek comics, I'd say anything put out in the last, well, since Discovery came out, so the last five years or so has been absolutely stellar. I mean, there have been a couple issues here and there that were like, yeah. Uh, the year five series in particular, though, if you're going to read Star Trek comics, uh, and only pick one series. That's the one I would read because it's so good. The writing is so good. Yeah, they're enjoyable. They're really, really good. I, I can't recommend them enough. But, but but getting back to Assignment Earth, I thought it was a it was a very fun episode. It it, it didn't it didn't have the um, the the really the the, the moral uh, subplot that a lot of Star Trek had. It was more of a a fun rompy type of a story and uh, highly enjoyable. I felt. And he's a secret agent. I think that's yeah. one of the things why it, it's such a cool late 60s show because during this is the high heyday of the bond pictures, right? When Sean Connery dominated the planet and, and, uh, and he is basically a outer space secret agent is what Gary seven is all about. And it's that coolness factor that I think continues to make this a really fun, uh, really engaging story that people always put in their top 20, top 25 episodes. And so if you're listening, Playmates Toys, we've always wanted a Gary oh, 7 action figure yeah. with, with ISIS. And it would be, you know, I mean, come on, a little love here for the classics. It would be fantastic. And one thing I did want to mention just before, I didn't want this to, to fall apart just because I think it fits on the same shelf, just mention it real quick, is the whole idea of this being a failed pilot, right? And if you're a Gene Roddenberry fan, I don't know if everybody's gotten a chance to see all these, but there in the early 70s, there was a whole gaggle of these pilot movies that Gene wrote and put up that, that you know, were actually pretty entertaining, but they were all done as like pilots to become series that never became series. There was one called the Quester tapes that I'm guessing a lot of old fans may have uh, heard of. Have you ever seen that, Eric? I have not seen the Quester tapes. No. Yeah. It's basically, it's a, it's, it's about the idea of like, it's kind of, you can tie it back to next gen and Dr. Soong really, because it's about this scientist and him creating the first accurate Android essentially. Right. Uh, Quester tapes is like the beginning building blocks template for where they would eventually go to explore the data character came right out of there. He did a supernatural series show called Spectre. That's very much like Dr. Strange in a lot of ways with paranormal detectives and then two kind of dystopian uh, sci-fi thriller shows. Um, Like one was called Genesis two and one was called planet earth. But if you like uh, assignment earth, and you like the whole idea of like, oh, this is like, you know, building blocks to kind of launch off and you can picture a whole bunch of different stories. All of these are available on like CBS Home Video. They like make them super easy to find. I think a lot of them are on one disc where you can just get them and watch them and stuff. And they are they're a little goofy because they're dated in some ways, right? It's that 70s vibe to it, but they're wonderfully entertaining and they all scream Gene Roddenberry's 
ethos in terms of the writing on there because he wrote all of them and they really feel like Gene. So check them out if you uh, are a fan of this episode and you've never seen them. Track them down. Um, they definitely belong on the same shelf as uh, Gary Seven. Genesis wow. 2 was awesome. I, I liked Genesis 2. I thought that was decent. Ah, it was cool kind of like a Planet of the Apes type of a thing, but without the apes. It's pretty yeah. cool. Yeah, and they, but, they, um, they did a bunch of those, and they're, they're, they're really fun. So, yeah, so I just want to say one line, that uh, Futurism, I don't know what, what magazine that is, but Futurism ranked Assignment Earth as one of the best second-tier Original series episodes. I don't know what that means. Second, I think tier. they, I think they mean one that's not focused around the big three and some sort of like interesting plot about that. So they, they, they're, they're saying like, you know, we took uh, ourselves outside of what we normally see on Star Trek. What's the best of that? Right. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I could see that. So Assignment Earth never got picked up. They never, we never got to see the, the further adventures of Gary Seven, but we do get to see Talon One. <laughs> I, just, I don't know. <laughs> or, or is she we Talon know she's Seven? A, well, we know she's a supervisor, but we don't know how long she's been around. And uh, Well, you find out in the comics why Gary Seven is number seven as opposed to like number six or five or whatever. So who knows what Talon is? Yeah, we don't know. Maybe we'll find out on Thursday, although I don't think so. But, yeah. I think so that's, Gary's that's why just we another Romulan. Just another yeah. Romulan, yeah. <laughs> I wonder if she's related to the Mo guy from Carbon Creek who's running around on Earth somewhere. We'll have to uh, we'll have to ask Eduardo Roman that on Monday when he's on mm-hmm. Trek Talking too. That's right, guys. That's right. You thought that I, that I slipped that in there and made a mistake? Oh, no, no. We've got a great, great show planned for you next Monday. Same bad time, same bad channel. We're going to have Eduardo Roman on, and he is the mind meld Vulcan from Star Trek Picard's episode Mercy. He's the Vulcan that uh, mind melds. Tries to mind mind meld. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And then, then beams away before the mind meld completely takes form and we're going to have him here on the podcast live on monday night you guys can give us a call at 646-668-2433 and talk to eduardo roman yourself ask him your questions we're going to have a lot of fun hanging out and chatting with him so you want to check that out on monday night thursday night uh is the premiere of strange new worlds and and the season finale of picard as if that's not enough but we won't be talking about either of those two events on Thursday night. We will be talking about the hide and seek episode, which was episode nine of Star Trek Picard. We won't be covering the finale and strange new worlds until the following Thursday. We're a week behind. It gives our international listeners a chance to uh, catch up and participate in the podcast. So that's what we respect NATO. Yeah, exactly. That's what's going on with Trek talking. And I want to take an opportunity to say thank you to my Trek experts. And and they're all from Portland, except for me. I'm all alone up here in New England. But we want to say thank you so much to David for hanging out and Trek talking with us tonight. Thank you so much, David. You're very welcome. 
And we definitely want to say thank you to Paul, the wine guy. Thanks a lot, Paul. Oh, and thank you for doing our special Strange New Worlds intro show with me that we threw together in six minutes last um, last. <laughs> that was Saturday, fun, man. Monday. Are you kidding? <laughs> yeah, that was Friday. Kind of, that was Friday, Friday afternoon. Was that was crazy. Threw, yeah. yeah. Just kind of throw and it you together, know, Uncle Jim, um, I think uh, David and Eric and I have been talking, right? And clearly there is something in the water here in Portland. And if you would like us to send you some samples of uh, – Portland water just to help indoctrinate folks in another part of the country so they can equally have the same depth of trek that we share. Uh, we'd be happy to send you a liter or two. You know, just just let us know I, if it ever comes. To I you. think it's like invasion of the body snatch type of thing <laughs> going on. <laughs> you know, oh, going to be like, you know, Vermont's been good, but I really feel, honey, I want to move to Oregon. I can't explain it. And your wife's going to be like, well, I don't want to go to Oregon. Here, just drink this. I'm going to fall asleep and wake up with pointed ears or something. <laughs> you know? Oh, boy. And, of course, we definitely want to say thank you to our trifecta from Portland, of course, Eric. So thank you so much, Eric, for hanging out and Trek talking with us. Well, I had a great time, as always. And as a person who has lived in both New England and the Great Northwest, I can tell you that there is a lot of synergy between these two regions. So it does not surprise me that we all get along pretty darn well. No, and let's not forget Eric. Eric, I mean, let's not forget Charles. He's out in Vegas, which is actually sure. close to you guys and I am, <laughs> so, yeah. which is pretty cool. And, of course, I'm your most excellent host, Uncle Jim. And I just want to say to everybody, please stay safe. And be good to each other. Hailing frequencies are closed. Good night, everybody. Hail. Good night. Live long and prosper. Let's see what's out there. Engage. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Over and by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.